the little boy ran up to his father excitedly with the fishing pole still in his hand, a big fish still flopping around at the hook. And he said, I did it. I finally did it all by myself. The dad previously had put the hooks on, had baited the hooks, had even hooked the fish and reeled it in and and given it to the son and said, here, son, reel it in. He had caught fish before, but this was the first time he had done it all by himself. I still remember kind of that for, for Isaiah, my own son, and his first real fish that he caught. It was exciting. And it kind of resonates with us. And there's a a quote that I read recently that says, life's biggest satisfactions are those things we have accomplished all by ourselves. And there's some truth to that. We don't want to go too far, but there is some truth to that. Think of the kid who tied his shoes all by himself. He accomplished it. You think about the kid who went to the potty finally, and the mothers say, praise the Lord. But you think about the grades that you've made in school. You think about that day when you finally graduate, you have done it. You think about other milestones in your life, whether it's marriage or a further graduation or starting a business or getting some promotion. And there is a sense in which which we should take satisfaction in accomplishments. There's nothing wrong with that. And yet, that very same thing can present the biggest spiritual danger for your own soul. In a couple of ways. One way, it could turn toward a a real issue of selfish pride in which you, you look only within to find your hope and your reliance. But even more dangerous than that, we can begin to, this, this idea can begin to bleed over into our spiritual lives. And we can begin to take real pride in the fact that we are doing it. We have done it. We have accomplished this or that. Till we're ultimately trusting in ourselves for our own acceptance before God. Self-reliance is, can be a good thing in many ways, and yet it can also be a very big spiritual danger to your soul. I wonder if you've recognized that in your own life, in your own spiritual walk. Well, in our passage this morning, it is foretold that Jesus would do it all by himself. See, what we need to be reminded of in the spiritual life is ultimately it is not our doing which presents us as righteous before God. It is Jesus Christ and his work. Jesus and him alone is what and is who is able to present us as wholly acceptable before the Father. In this passage in particular, we see Jesus foresees what's going to take place. He foresees the darkness of sin which will seek to destroy him and overtake him. He foresees the betrayal of one of his own disciples. He, see, he foresees even the denial of one who was with him, Peter himself. He sees it all, that he is going to have to walk this path alone. He sees all the darkness, and yet, as Jason mentioned already, he willingly goes through with it all. What would you do if you you saw something ahead of you, and you knew you could make a a turn to the left or to the right, and you could avoid it? You could be free from suffering. 
Jesus could have made that choice, and yet he willingly walked forward into the darkness of sin and suffering and death for our sins, brothers and sisters. This passage is about Christ. I almost made this passage about us. As I was thinking through a suitable outline for this passage, I thought about, well, this is speaking about who a disciple is. It's one who glories in the suffering of Christ. It is one who loves his brothers. It is one who depends upon the grace of Christ. And while all those things are true, this text is ultimately about Jesus and his work. It's not about us. So often we're prone to turn it back on ourselves. And I want you to see in this passage the faithfulness of Jesus Christ who died for you in his love for you, in his grace for you, that you might be saved. First, I want us to notice this darkness, this theme of darkness in verses 21 to 30. It says Jesus was troubled in his spirit. We've already seen this once before in chapter 12, verse 27, in fact. We saw this. His soul is troubled. And what shall he say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. His soul is in turmoil as he looks through the corridor of time and sees his own suffering. It brings a turmoil to him. It's a fearful thing. And he testifies as he thinks about this betrayal that one of them will betray him. Notice the confusion of the disciples. They don't know who it is. Who is it? It reminds us of the wicked schemes of the devil the stealthiness of his schemes, that he is always seeking to destroy Jesus and his people, but he does so secretly in ways that we might not notice. The disciples didn't understand who he was speaking of. So you can imagine the, the scene, they're sitting together around a table, kind of laying down on their sides, and Peter motions to one of the other disciples to try to figure out who, is, who he's speaking of. Verse 25, so that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Now he's, he's asking, who is the betrayer? Who is the one who is betraying? But the way that the author puts this, we might be led to start thinking about, well, who is this beloved disciple? This mysterious disciple who leans back against Jesus. You might can imagine the scene too as, as one of my children lays back against me, lays their head in my chest. This is the picture of this beloved disciple as he lays his head against the chest of Jesus, such a, a closeness of proximity. In fact, in chapter 1 of the book of John, this is said of Jesus with his heavenly Father, that he was by the side of the Father, that he was in the bosom of the Father, as some translations put it. This, this closeness, this intimacy, unlike what we've seen among brothers and, and sisters. And yet, it is said here of the beloved disciple, and we're led to wonder, who is this beloved disciple? He is, he's held up as kind of an ideal disciple. Intimacy with Christ. Contrasted with this betrayer, this one who would deliver over Jesus. Well, Jesus answers, it is him to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So he dipped it and he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. Jesus told him, what you are going to do, do it quickly. 
And we might be confused about verse 28. No one at the table knew why he said this. They were confused, even though at least Jesus had said this to, to this beloved disciple. At least he should have known, right? And yet, the author tells us none of them knew what was going on. It's almost as if they were blinded in a sense. It was such a surprise to them, they couldn't imagine this happening. And yet, Jesus foresees it all. Go and do what you are going to do. Jesus foresees the darkness of sin that seeks to destroy him, that seeks to overcome him. Satan enters into Judas, and he begins his betrayal. Before, we had seen that Judas, uh, that Satan had put it into Judas's heart to betray Jesus. And here, the two form a, a sort of partnership where Judas eventually is turned over to Satan to do this work. Now, we might consider this betrayal of Jesus and, and put ourselves in the situation. Well, who would we be in this, in this situation? Would we not be the beloved disciple? We would be against the bosom of Jesus. We would be in the closest intimate relationship with him. We would be in the place of honor at the meal at Jesus' right hand. Or would we be the betrayer? Would we be the one who would turn against our Lord? And of course, we say, no, we wouldn't do that. And yet, we also must acknowledge, left to our natural selves, that is exactly what we would do. Not only is it exactly what we do, in a sense, we could say it is exactly what we have done in betraying our Creator. This is the state of all humility, of all humanity, that of betrayers against their Creator. God created us for His own glory, and we have not lived for His glory. We turned against the one who made us and rejected him, rebelled against him. See, we underestimate often our own rebelliousness against our maker when left to ourselves. As you look back on your life prior to becoming a Christian, your tendency will be to underestimate your own sin, to underestimate how bad it really was. And because of that, that can lead us to stand in judgment over those who still remain in their sin. Think, I would never do a thing like that. I would never do what that person does. Well, why is it that you wouldn't betray Jesus now? It is because you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This is why even though we feel prone to wander, those who have been born again by the Holy Spirit will not wander away from the Lord because those who He has placed His Spirit upon, He will never take it away. Why would you not betray your Lord Jesus, because the Spirit indwells you and will keep you. He will guard you until the end. Well, the darkness of sin threatened to destroy Jesus, to overcome Him, and yet what we see in verses 31 and 32, that the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. This marks a turning point in this section in which Jesus turns his focus to those who are his own, to his own disciples. The betrayer has left, and now he is free to begin teaching and preparing his disciples for his own suffering and death, his rejection, and then when he ascends and departs from them. This is often called the upper room discourse, as Jesus teaches his disciples and prepares them, gets them ready for his leaving. 
When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Although the darkness of sin threatened to overcome Jesus, the light of the world, we see that actually it is in the darkness of this sin and suffering that the glory of God in Jesus Christ shines the brightest. It's as if the first domino in a line of dominoes was pushed over as Judas made steps to betray Jesus, and now Jesus is able to say, now is the Son of Man glorified. Now is he beginning to be glorified as he is on his way to mocking, to suffering, to death, to persecution, to crucifixion. Now is the Son of Man glorified. God's glory shines the brightest in the suffering of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. Jesus' glory is God's glory. The Son of Man's glory is the Father's glory. To glorify the Son means that the Father will be glorified. This is a part of the Trinitarian nature of our God. To glorify one means to glorify the other. They are in this together. He is in this together. The Father and Son have planned together throughout all history that this is how it would all go down. This is how the plan of redemption would take place. Therefore, for the Son to be glorified meant the Father and the Spirit would also be glorified. But this way of doing things is foolishness to the world. That, That Christ would be glorified most in his suffering and death seems completely counterintuitive to us. Seems completely foolish to the world. This is what Paul said uh, in the book of Corinth, in the letter to the Corinthians. The foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. Jesus Christ hanging on a cross, beaten, naked, was a shameful thing, and yet this is where we have our salvation. This is where the glory of Christ shines the most. But we tend to think of it in different terms. We want to see the glory here and now. We want to see Him lifted up as King on a throne here and now. We we want to experience this kind of glory for ourselves. We want to see Jesus thought of as highly, as, as, as great and amazing. One of the things we see regularly, and now I want to be careful with this because I don't want to despise this, and yet I want to show a contrast. Often you might see uh, actresses or actors or sports stars, when they have accomplished something great, what will they say if they are a Christian and they're seeking to honor the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm thankful for that, so there's my nuance. But what might they say? First and foremost, I want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we're happy with that, right? We want to see Jesus honored. But what would it look like if a sports star was totally humiliated? He went down and he had the worst performance of his life and he was humiliated in the Super Bowl. And after the game, he, you can tell that he is sad, his face is downcast, and the interviewer turns to him and puts the mic in his face, and he says, first of all, I want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I've never seen that. That would be weird, wouldn't it? 
to see Christ glorified in our own humility, in our own losing. See, we want to see Christ glorified in winning. We want, to see, we want others to see that it pays to love Jesus. If you win, it's because Jesus is being glorified in your winning. But here we see Jesus being glorified in his losing. The lowest of the low, the most shameful of them all, your Lord Jesus Christ. And this is where there is glory. We need a radical mindset shift in what we see as glorious. Glory to God in his suffering and death. That's what Jesus says. And we ought to consider in light of that the sort of glory we prize not only for our Lord and Savior, but also for our lives. With that sort of mind shift, what does it mean for me to live for the glory of God? In my losing, in my suffering, in my sorrow, in my shame. The darkness of sin threatened to destroy, overcome the light of the world, Jesus Christ, but that is where he shined most brightly. And in light of his absence, in light of his going away, he now gives a command to his disciples. See this in verses 33 through 35. You see Jesus' fatherly tone, little children. He speaks tenderly to them. He cares for them. He is concerned for their, their safety and their comfort. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Now, he had said this to the Jews previously in chapters 7 and 8, and yet there was a slight difference. He says, just as I said to them, he's going where they cannot come, they cannot come with him, and yet to the Jews he said, and you will die in your sins. They cannot come with him, just as the Jews cannot come with them, but there is, there's a difference. And later he tells them, you will come later, but right now I have to go myself. But in light of his absence, notice his command to them. I give to you this command, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for another. We have three kind of quality traits of this love, we could say. Three characteristics of this love. One, he says, as I have loved you, you are to love one another. Consider how Jesus just washed the feet of the disciples. In all humility, in all service, this is how we are to love one another. He says, this is a new commandment. And some have mentioned in the quality of love, Jesus serves in, in humility, not only serves, he sacrifices himself. He lays down his life for a brother. No, no greater love is there than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. So it is a, a new sort of quality to love. And yet I think also here we must see this as an institution of sorts of the new covenant of this new community that is being drawn together by the blood of Jesus Christ. This, this is a new commandment for a new community. This is a new commandment for a new covenant. 
a covenant in Jesus' blood. Love one another. And then a really interesting qualification he makes. This, this is to be the distinguishing mark of Jesus' disciples. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, the first thing we think probably is that Christians are to be marked with love. We should love everyone. We, we should be all about love, and that is absolutely true, but that's not what the author says here. He says, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Well, who is that? Look around the room, brothers and sisters. We, we believe in the universal church, absolutely. We prayed for our brothers and sisters who are persecuted. We are to show love to them through, through praying for them. We are to love the wider community of church as our brothers and sisters as, at Exchange Church and other churches in the area. We are to show love for them. And yet, here he's speaking precisely to his disciples. Love one another. You, James and John and Peter, love each other. This is how... Everybody, the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. He narrows it down to a real specific context. And I think the, the, the application for us would be, look around the room, brothers and sisters, at your fellow church members. This is how the world will know you are Jesus' disciples if you love one another. Consider, brothers and sisters, how have you loved one another. It's going to get uncomfortable. How have you loved Tim Gray? How have you loved Cassie Nash? How have you loved Ava Stoddard and Michelle and Tracy? Over the past weeks and months and years, brothers and sisters, how have you loved these in the room with one another? Our tendency is to consider, how have I been loved well? Who has loved me well? What, is, what has someone done for me lately? When Jesus is saying, look at your brothers and sisters. Love them intimately. This is one of the real gifts of a small church. Is that, you know, within a year, you could make contact in some way with everyone in this body of believers. You couldn't do that in every church. You can know one another and be known by one another in real intimate ways and show this kind of love. Imagine a church of 10 people where each member is asking themselves, why hasn't anyone loved me? What if each of those 10 members in turn said, how can I love the other nine? Well, then you have nine Loving on each, each other. Each one receiving the love of nine others, giving love to the other nine. Brothers and sisters, let us love one another. This is how the world will know that we are Jesus' disciples. If we have love for each other. Distinguishing mark of the, the disciple. Distinguishing mark of the Christian. As Jesus leaves his disciples, he says, this is the command I'm leaving you with. Love one another. But we see in verses 36 through 38, Peter doesn't quite get it yet. He skips over this command like we are prone to do. Skips over the command to love John and James and the other disciples. And says, Lord, where are you going? 
I kind of wish Jesus had said, wait, let's, let's back it up a little bit. I said, love one another, and you're worried about where I'm going. Now, he is right in the sense that he, he has a desire to be with Jesus. He wants to go where Jesus goes. He doesn't want Jesus to leave. We wouldn't want him to either. Where are you going? But Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter says, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Peter's zeal is laudable, and yet he understands the mission of Jesus, his master, and he misunderstands his own greatest need. In a sense, Jesus says, you will follow me afterwards, but you can't follow me until you don't follow me. In other words, Jesus has to go first before anyone else can follow him. Jesus has to go first and alone. The irony of Peter's words is that no, Peter would not lay down his life for Jesus, but Jesus would lay down his life for Peter. You see, Peter may have had an idea of wanting to protect Jesus. I will do whatever it takes to protect you. I want to serve you, Jesus. I want to protect you at all costs. I'm willing to go down with you. I'm willing to sink with the ship. But he misunderstands completely Jesus' mission. And this is why God's glory shines most beautifully, most gloriously in his suffering and death. Because it is for his disciples. It is for those who follow him. It's for you, brother. It's for you, sister. Jesus willingly sees all that is before him. He sees Judas's betrayal. He sees the beatings, the whips which come upon his back. He sees Peter's denial. He loves Peter. He cares, imagining one of your best friends turning his or her back on you, completely rejecting you. He foresees this. He foresees his mocking and his brutal death on the cross, and he says, I'm going down that path for the glory of God and for the salvation of my people. See, we're like Peter in many ways. We want to serve Jesus. Peter wants to serve Jesus, but first he needs to be served. Before you can do anything for Christ, you need to recognize your own need to be served by his death, by the cleansing of his blood for you, brothers and sisters. Peter wants to do something great for Jesus. Don't you want to do something great for Jesus? You want to do something that makes a difference, that, that difference that makes a big change in the world or someone's life. But before you can do that, you must be served. And Peter wants to do something great for Jesus, but Jesus just wants Peter to love his brothers and sisters. Maybe you want to do something great for Jesus, but right now, Jesus is calling you to love your brothers and sisters. Something that seems so ordinary, so simple. And yet this is how Christ builds his church. This is how Christ strengthens his church. Peter doesn't get it. And the question that remains for us is, will we get it? Do we understand that we can't 
glorify God in our own self-reliance, but we are utterly in need of the grace of Jesus Christ who will lay down his life for us. Let's pray together, brother.